RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. Uh, we have a special episode uh, today. We have Ellis Quinn, who is a writer, artist, performer, and activist. She's the founding director of The Reading Room, a nonprofit bookstore startup that funds literary and literacy works uh, programs in Cleveland, Ohio. Her work focuses on issues of identity and spirituality, often through the lens of domestic life and interpersonal relationships. Her feminist art and useful objects are available for sale at robotballerina.com. Uh, welcome, Alice. Um, welcome, Alice Quinn. Hi, DJ. How's it going? Hi, going well, going well. Thank you. It's Monday morning uh, at 8 a.m. Um, why don't we start the conversation off with talking a little bit about your work and uh, you mentioned your bio that you focus on issues of identity and spirituality. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, um, that's something that's sort of only become clear in the past year or so. I um, I always thought of myself as writing sort of pure art, like like what I write is just sort of precious, you know, imagery and metaphor. And like I have a technical background in writing, I have a degree in English, and then over the past few years of performing my art that is based so much on my own experience in my own personal life, my romantic life, my intimate life, um, audience responses have begun to be really more intense than I ever expected. I was at a reading a couple of weeks ago, and one of the judges for the slam said, this is completely plausible, everyday horror. Um, mm. which is not what I was really going for. Um, but then a friend of mine said that I have the talent for revealing uh, the the horror, again, at the heart of everyday life. And so for me, that's really not what I was going for, but it yeah. is what happens. Um, so just being who I am and interacting with the world the way I am and interacting with the world the way I do, even though I think of myself as a very sort of average, solid, respectable person. I'm literally calling you from my house in the suburbs in the Midwest. Um, it turns out that being, just being in the same demographic as all those suburban soccer moms we always talk about um, really is a source of incredible, um, there's a lot of fear and revulsion in the way that the world perceives us, which is something I never expected to be the case. So interesting that you brought up the um, unintentional horror and the fear, how people have perceived that. What was your intentions and how do you think that, uh, how do you interpret that? Or let's go a little deeper into that and how you interpret um, what is the, what is horrific about, uh, you know, interpersonal relationships or what is the horror that underlies uh, domestic life and interpersonal relationships So that's your focus? through the lens of, so why don't we go a little bit deeper into like, what do you think is being seen and, and what do you feel your intention was? Sure. Um, so like I have a poem called mock duck, which is inspired by a recipe in the Betty Crocker cookbook. And it's just about like a, a holiday dish. And I started writing it and I was really thinking about how much I love the Betty Crocker cookbook, how much I loved learning to cook from the same book that my mother learned to cook from. Um, when I turned 
19 when I went to college. Um, they were creating a facsimile edition of that cookbook, and my cousins and I all got one. And that, that cookbook has been such a source of joy and fondness for me. But that's partly because I mostly learned to make the dessert recipes. And if you go into the other recipes, the ones that have meat, which is, of course, blood and bone and, you know, animal parts, um, <laughs> They are truly horrifying because it's mid-century cuisine. So it's like, oh, here's an aspic, you know, and there's there's just it gets a lot grosser. And then if you unpack the rhetoric in the text that surrounds the recipes, it's kind of terrifying. There's really honest, I did not pick this up, in the pie section, there's this this thing about like pie and patriotism where Betty Crocker is teaching the cooks of 1954 how to be an American by making the perfect pie crust, which is really kind of terrifying. Like, if what we need to be a country is the homogeneity of everyone knowing how to make the same pastry dough, that is not a world I actually want to live in, no matter how delicious the snickerdoodles are. So, you know, I start out thinking I'm just going to write this sort of adorable reminiscence about, you know, the kitchen and, and growing up. And I end up, the poem ends with like, a call to revolution because I don't want the life that my mother and my grandmother, and my great grandmother, and my great great grandmother had. Yeah, it seems like it connects directly with what you're most passionate about in your life, the kind of the the compass to which you bring to the to the literary field, uh, and how what's guiding you and what's um, uh, bringing you through this terrain and show, exposing the uh, double talk or the hypocrisy and in these uh, already found texts. So let's go into that. So what what would you say is your most passionate about your life and what topics do you think you can uh, can really get deep into? Um, so I think the core value that has guided me for a really long time now is authenticity, which doesn't necessarily sound all that powerful on the surface. You know, it's just like, well, of course, we shouldn't be dishonest. But also, I think a lot of people are really willing to only present one part or one facet of themselves, depending on what setting they're in. And I just have never had that gift, and I don't have that gift. And any time that I've tried, any time that I have betrayed that core value, it has been just a mess. And so for me, like, if you ask my opinion, you will get my opinion. And if you ask my preference, you will get my preference. And that has led me to a life that I feel really very, very secure in actually saying what I actually feel. I, I had a conflict with, a, with an individual here in town a couple of years ago, and I was thinking, it seems like he thought I was being dishonest the last time we spoke. But I know for a fact I was being absolutely honest because I'm always absolutely honest. So, like, I know I didn't. I, I didn't try to mislead him. I didn't tell any lies. I didn't, I, I didn't even try to shelter his feelings very much. He asked me a question and I answered it. And I know that I don't think he thought I was telling the truth. Um, and just that principle, just that one principle of I expect to present my truth and I expect others to respect that truth because I also respect other people's truth. Um, that has really brought me to a life that is something I really think is worth living. Um, I don't always like people's truth. You know, I don't always enjoy their truth. I don't always approve of their truth, but I tend to be willing to accept their truth 
because you just kind of have to, like, I may not like it, Mm. but I do have to know who the person is. Yeah, I think definitely, I think that we have to meet people where they are, but when they're being, I think the main conflict for me at least comes up when they're being duplicitous or they're they're being false or they're being not truthful. And you sense that uh, sometimes we have to, we have to kind of trust, we have to have trust in, uh, in the, in the, in the process and understand, you know, when people are being truthful and people are being authentic and understand when they're being inauthentic and kind of have a, a radar for that and kind of, do you, do you agree or do you feel like, uh, especially with this conflict? Yeah, it seems like, I do. Yeah. I do. And it's, I never, I typically don't expect people to be inauthentic um, because it just seems so useless and a waste of time and effort to me. Um, but I also think we have to recognize that there's a difference between factual truth and like authenticity. Like I feel like our the current occupant of the White House is really good at just making things up when it comes yeah. to fact, but also the like horrible things that he voices, the feelings that he voices, the hatred, the fear, the scorn, the disdain, you know, that's all totally authentic. And that I think is hitting something deep and true, if awful. In the hearts of a lot of people, I think a lot of people do have that sort of angry, dark fire in their hearts, and he's giving voice to it. That part isn't a lie, even though the words he's saying are almost always lies. Yeah, it seems like for years we've been building up this uh, momentum towards spin and towards, um, you know, angling things towards, you know, uh, fudging truth, fudging facts, fudging things in order to get uh, the attempt, at least in the past years, the past 20, 30 years, it may be in Prior to that, maybe even more, but at least in my witnessing, uh, you know, there's been a lot of spin. There's been a lot of pushing towards um, the attempt to get authenticity. But then here we have more, you know, in this generation, in this kind of uh, manifestation, we have more and more of a spin doctor, more and more of an attempt to fudge truth and have alternative facts. And it's become so blatant, so obvious that we're questioning what is authentic and we're questioning wh- where is the authenticity. And I think that fear and that, that hatred and that that uh, pushback seems to be, you know, the, the only true thing that we can see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as we can perceive that that fear and hatred are true, if if by true we mean real, if if they're a real react, a real reflection of what's in people's hearts. But that obscures the fact that they're completely false. If you're looking for facts. Yeah, and also I would I would question further whether or not that's a judgment. Uh, and whether or not there's something even deeper, I don't know. Like, I feel like saying that, you know, going to, if you met someone who's a, uh, a, a supporter of this movement and you're like, uh, oh, you, you're suffering from fear and hatred and they may, whether or not they confirm that or deny that, I don't know. I've never had that deep a conversation with a, a supporter. Um, but, um, I wonder whether or not they, they feel like they, they move towards some other truth. I don't know. It's something to speculate on, but. Until we actually have a uh, a heart to heart, if you will, with someone. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's questioning. I, mean, I live here in what we like to call a blue smile on a red state. You know, which means that a lot of my friends and family are uh, very typical red state voters, and I do have those conversations on a pretty regular basis. Um, and one that really surprised <laughs> me happened when I was an adult, and I was out at a diner with a family member 
And I mentioned a conflict that was going on at that time in the Methodist church over queer inclusion. And for me, that's really a no-brainer. It has never occurred to me that it would actually make sense to exclude gay people. That seems like total nonsense. That being said, I didn't approve of one of the small details of how the conflict was being managed. And I mentioned it to this family member, and he started just spitting and sputtering and his face turned purple and it changed shape. And it was like, I was looking at a different person. Mm. He was talking there, right there in the diner. It was like a completely different person came out of his body. And I was so startled because I mean, I am like a progressive, you know, child of the enlightenment. Like I'm, I am the inheritor of, you know, Sesame Street and Ben Franklin. Not that that's all great, but that's who I am. And I was sitting at the diner and I just felt like, oh my God, demons are real. Like mm. I was like, I don't believe in the supernatural, but it was as if another being was inhabiting his body and giving and, and running his voice. And he, he looked like a different person because literally the muscles of his face changed, like changed shape, you know? And I, I was just like, wow, that I did not know was in there. And so that's something that, He's not, and we disagree, but he's not lying. That is, it's real. It feels like it's a different person talking, but it is, it is a level of, of emotion that I didn't know was in there. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, also in, in some of your uh, pre-interview questions, we're getting to know you kind of idea. You were quoting about, um, you know, when we think about children, we think about equity and, uh, and um, the need for coaching and guiding children at a young age towards these kind of goals of, of equity and towards the goals of, of uh, equality and these goals of, of justice. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, there are bullies in kids. You know, there are bullied, kids are bullies. Kids can sometimes be angry. And But where do you think that all comes from? And where do you think that, uh, and do you believe that? Or do you believe that, um, or, do, or are you going to stand by the idea that, Children's are all diamonds in the in the in the pile of the, in the rough. How how would I be able to challenge yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is something that I've always struggled with. I was really raised in a faith tradition that likes to think that people are always good at heart. You know, we love the Anne Frank quote about you know she's trapped in a closet and she believes that people are all good at heart. We love to think that everyone is just sort of naturally good, and it's like an accident that we sin and that we fall short. Um, but something that I found more comforting as I've grown older and I've had to grapple with the darkness, not only in other people, but in my own soul and in my own self and my own impulses. Um, there's another quote that I don't know if it's the Bible or, you know, Anne Mara Lindbergh, I really don't know, but it's all have sinned and fallen short. Um, and that is really Can you repeat the quote? what I feel now. And I think that we need to imagine people complexly. What I always say is I don't think it's useful or usually true to think of people as being good people or bad people. I think that we are all complex people who do good and bad things. And so the goal for me is always to evoke the good things and build the ability and the capacity to do good things in myself and in others, especially children. But yeah, absolutely. They can be jerks. I can be a jerk. You can be a jerk. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And can you repeat the quote again? I didn't quite catch that. 
that? Sure. It's I. I don't. I don't remember. I'm so sorry. I'm such. I'm like not a great uh, <laughs> person of faith, but I think it's 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 all have sinned and fallen short. And I uh, think the end of the sentence is the glory of God. All have sinned okay. and fallen short of the glory of God. But the other quote is that all of your sins are like a live coal in the ocean. And so, if you drop all of that dark fire into the huge vastness of the universe, it is really all very small and can be extinguished, um, which is what I hope for. Interesting. Course. Interesting. And um, let's talk a little bit of equity and access to, and access as a librarian. I think I very sure. important for me to understand access and understand access to knowledge, access to information, you know, get, giving people the chance to uh, understand where to find answers to their questions and how to connect them with the resources they need. What is your belief in in regards to um, equity versus and and how do you define that? Give a brief definition and and give a sense of and uh, how you think that's so important. Um, so the thing that I always think about, and I kind of hate quoting Harrison Keeler, but I do still, is all our children are above average. You know, I think that the idea that we should give more resources to the exceptional children and support their development and sort of hope that they will redeem society under their own steam is both unfair to the non-exceptional children and also unfair to that talented tenth that you're pulling out. You know, I really felt as a child, um, I was in a school where we gave a lot of our resources to the two classes of honors students who had been determined mostly by like the ability to please teachers and conform to uh, disciplinary norms. And so we, those 60 students, I was in those classes, um, we got a lot of extra time, extra resources, extra teaching. Um, But the flip side of that is that it was really expected that we were going to go on and do extraordinary things. And I don't think now as an educator and as a citizen, I don't think it's actually helpful to try to say, you know, these special people are going to go do something special. I think we need everyone to be committed to doing the right thing and everyone to be equipped to do the right thing. And we need the expectation that we are all as a community working to improve the community not 60 students in my class, but all 300 students in my class, you know? Mm. Um, And so that's part of it is that I think that giving that weight to a, to a group of exceptional individuals is just toxic and terrible and doomed. But the other part of it is that I think that access to culture and access to our cultural heritage and to an education is a fundamental human right. Um, And so watching the different experiences that, the kids I work with here on the east side of Cleveland have versus what is being done in the wealthy suburbs of the city is just awful because they're not less talented. They're not less motivated. They're not less skilled. They're not less competent. What they are is less equipped. They aren't getting food. They aren't getting school supplies. They aren't getting, you know, we talk about the digital divide, but there are so many divides. And I just, If you have a kid growing up in the neighborhood I work in, they're succeeding, then that means by definition that they are displaying more competence and more stick-to-itiveness and more grit, whatever you think grit is, than the students who are having their lives basically catered and managed for them. You know, I had a 12-year-old boy 
who was navigating public transit and getting himself fed and getting himself housed and getting himself to school and still had time to like have a, a, a hobby in the arts. And I was just like, I know a lot of grown adults with master's degrees from Ivy League universities who could not do this. Mm. He is 12, can't get a credit card. He can't get a debit card. He can barely buy a bus pass. You know, he has to pay for things with cash due to the fact that he is a sixth grader. Yet he is succeeding. And so whenever I'm struggling or whenever I see, you know, my friends and loved ones who I definitely do love, but like we will have a meltdown if there is a delay in the drive through at Starbucks. And this 12 year old is just like, I got to go to the laundromat and get my clothes washed because I got school this week. Mm. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know. it's interesting how. You know, it, can we put that's that kind kid of, in charge of something? Like, can we put him yeah. in charge of the Department of Education? Can we can we put him in charge of housing? You know, he seems to have pretty good instincts. He's a twelve year old with no access to banking, and he is running his own life. Yeah, it's interesting how um, the typical, you know, we have these perceptions about children and and typical kids his age, and you know how we are surprised when we actually examine. Uh, individual cases and and find that they're they're quite different from the perceptual biases that we have and and how kids themselves kind of label each other. We were talking we were talking a little bit about um you know these ideas of the nerd, the geek, and the dork, and how these kids these yeah, kids can yeah. sometimes label each other that, and then they kind of conform to those behavioral patterns of those groups. So um, tell us a little bit about how when growing up. Uh, you had these kind of, I guess we both grew up with these kind of labels, you know, uh, around in the, in the ethos. And then, um, you know, how maybe you tried to navigate that, that terrain. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so weirdly, like I, I was sort of, um, tracked into that honor students, um, cohort in my high school, which I, I mean, I say tracked into, but the fact is that I would not have gotten in under my own power. My mother, who worked for the school, went into an administrator's office and said, My daughter is talented and gifted. If you don't put her in this class, I'm going to sue you. Um, which, considering that that was her employer at the time, I think is a lot of chutzpah. Um, she was absolutely correct. Like, sure, I'm smart. However, I was absolutely not succeeding at school. I really dislike being told what to do. I dislike having a lot of predictability in my day. I dislike sitting quietly for 42 minutes until the bell rings. Like, all of those things are just not my personality in any way, shape, or form. Um, so, I mean, I was not getting good grades in school. And I was always getting, like, all of this friction from the teachers. I mean, and I think part of that is that being sort of an angel-faced little girl who was mostly very quiet and mostly liked to read and, you know, learn things, um, teachers were just not sure what to do with this behavior problem. Because, you know, if you have a kid who's throwing things or shouting or disrupting or being rude and disrespectful, it's very easy to get mad at them and yell at them and discipline them. But for me, I mean, I would just like not do my homework and I would not pay attention and I'd be reading under my desk and the teachers would be like, what do we do? What do we do with this? And they would call my mom 
<laughs> who again, she worked for the school district. Like these are her coworkers and they would call her and they would be like, she keeps reading during pre-algebra and that I think is going to threaten her grades. What should we do? And my mom would be like, why are you calling me? I'm not there. You know, have you tried taking the books from her? And they would be like, no, we have, we haven't tried that. And my mom would be like, do you, how do you usually discipline children who are behaving badly? And they'd be like, well, I mean, we do detentions and things. And my mom would be like, did you write her a detention? Um, and so it was just really strange because it was like the teachers really did not want to get, they didn't want to hit me with that sort of disciplinary um, big stick even though I was completely misbehaving. And then I see the children I work with today. And I mean, I am often in charge of groups of kids. And if I had done any of those things, I think the teachers would have reacted to me differently, but just by being quiet and not being disruptive, they just didn't want to, like, they didn't want to punish me, you know, they wanted to help. And so, um, that's just really weird watching that. I, my, my brother was, uh, skater. He's my stepbrother. We're, we we didn't live together until I was, I think, 12 and he was 15. And he was a 90s skater in, in every way that that, in everything that that implies, you know, the, the Grateful Dead t-shirts and the bowl haircut. Um, and teachers just came down on him so hard. One time we were both in the hallway. We weren't together, but we happened to be in the hallway at the same time. And I'm just like walking around. And I think I was going like from the library to the journalism lab, you know, like I really liked extracurriculars even though I didn't like classes. And my brother was probably going from the bathroom out to the bike racks to smoke. And the teacher stopped him and was like, where are you going? Go back to class, get to study hall. Where's your hall pass? And I just kept walking. And he was like, wait a minute why are you stopping me? But you're not stopping her. And like, we are literally family. We live in the same house, but this teacher probably doesn't know that. And the teacher was just like, well, I know that she's not doing anything wrong. And that, that experience, like, I mean, yes, that's true. Sort of, you know, I was skipping class, but I was skipping class to like go hang out at the school paper as opposed to go hang out at the bike rack and smoke. But like, you look at him in the Grateful Dead t-shirt and you think, I should yell at this kid. You look at me with my little clipboard and you think, oh, she's doing the right thing. I mean, that is profiling, right? And that experience of watching my brother's face when he knew they could just look at him and know they could yell at him and that I would never be yelled at in that way. And, and watching how he felt about authority and watching how he felt about his place in society and, and his future, that was just heartbreaking. I mean, he was my stepbrother, you know, I didn't know him very well. It's not, it's not like we, we were, we were not like soul twins. We were just two kids who happened to live in the same house because our parents got married. But I watched his interaction with authority figures versus mine. And like, I knew I was misbehaving and I knew I would, I would basically never be punished. And that was so unfair and so heartbreaking that I've, I've never been willing to engage in that behavior as an authority and I try to stop every time I can. Yeah. It seems like uh, also in the a, story that bias deepens or creates the very thing that you're perceiving and it creates the, it deepens that kind of distance between the kids that, you know, the kid that you see with the great t-shirt and you think all oh, these kids are misbehavior. And then uh, it deepens that divide, you know, it kind of makes it more of a alienated and, and, and more of a misbehavior, but you're going to say something. 
Yeah, I just oh no, I mean you're absolutely right. You know, like my stepbrother was angry at that hall monitor, but he was also angry at me. Yeah. Right? And I mean, I I, I hadn't planned to be in the hall at the same time as him, mm. you know, but like we get home and he's just like, God, it happened again today. You know, and that, that really changes your relationship with each other. It it is authority pitting kids against each other and it, it's just not helpful. Um so what I was gonna say is I have a friend who um, I got to know just as she was marrying my college best friend. And one of the first things, I mean, he had told me many things about her. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's talented. She's successful. Quit, I'm so in love with this girl. And I was like, okay, great. You know, I've never met her. That I trust your judgment. But when we were hanging out, one of the first things she told me about herself was that when she turned 35 and she started going gray, she became invisible. And so she stopped paying for public transit in DC. She started jumping the turnstile um, because she was so angry about the fact that she knew they would not stop her. She was like, I am a middle-aged, middle-class white woman. I'm no longer like beautiful and young and ready for street harassment. And, uh, no one's going to say boo to me. It doesn't matter what I do. And so, you know what? No, I'm not paying for the train. If you want me to pay for the train, you need to stop profiling the people who ride the train. I am a, I am a train thief. I am stealing public transit fares. Please address it with me. You know, because she is. She is a, a, a middle-aged, middle-class white woman. If you ask her for her $2 fare, she will simply produce the $2 fare and pay it. You know, she's not going to get aggressive. She's not going to get violent. But she knows no one's going to ask her, and she's furious about that. So she just refused. I was like, I don't know that this is really the most pro-social behavior. Like, paying for public transit is actually really important. That being said, I see where that comes from. You know, it's the anger of knowing how other people are being treated and just not wanting to cooperate in any way, shape, or form, even, even by paying for a bus ride that you really ought to pay for. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, when it comes to the way we navigate those biases and we how we realize about ourselves, realize things about ourselves, realize things about society, and how we can try to do this quiet acts of rebellion in some ways to try to call attention to, I mean, not that I agree with as well with stealing uh, with that action, but uh, but at the same time, there there are other ways and there are many ways in which we can kind of buck the expectation and we can kind of try to create a disruption that will call attention to this bias and call attention to this, um, this inequity in, in, in the society. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. why don't we go into like, um, we were talking a little bit about what, uh, also what experience, I mean, you go into this, but what experiences or, or literary works with literary works were very key to understanding this, um, like as far as other people's writings go, um, what, 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 what were some works that were very pivotal for you? Hmm. Let me think. Um, cause you, you mentioned that I you know. were reading during class and all that. So what are the kinds of things you read and what are oh, the kinds yeah. of things? That, I mean, yeah. I just read constantly. And the thing that made me particularly crazy about my school is that we had a limit. You could only check out three books at a time. Um, which meant that I was basically going to the library before school and then at lunch and then in the afternoon to swap books because I was reading 
basically continuously and very rapidly. And yeah. so I started getting books uh, basically by weight rather than, you know, <laughs> judging them by cover or yeah. anything, which is how in eighth grade, I think I read, oh, what was it? Was it War and Peace or was it Les Mis? I'm, I'm like the one person who's actually read every page of Les Mis. Yeah. Um, I have read that book multiple times. And then I also, that same year, I read Gone with the Wind multiple times. And the comparison of those two books, like they're both describing societies with extreme inequity. And they're both describing the responses of the people in the society. They're both describing the 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 toxic and maladaptive situations and behaviors that people are experiencing. But in Les Mis, you are sort of sympathizing with the doomed rebellion. And in Gone with the Wind, you are asked to sympathize with one of the slave owners. And I mean, sure, I like antebellum dresses, but I can't say I ever really liked Scarlett O'Hara. You know, I didn't like her. I didn't identify with her. And so reading, being asked to identify with her for 1800 pages, I mean, I read the book, but ah, that's a no from me. So I would say just, I mean, I read everything. I read the classic literature. I read modern literature. I read a lot of Ray Bradbury. I read, you know, all the, the Golden Age and Silver Age sci-fi. That was big for me. Um, the thing that saved my life, though, is when I went to college, I went for my freshman year of college to a small private Catholic liberal arts school in my hometown. It was actually smaller than my high school. And I mean, I had struggled feeling like I was living in a toxic little fishbowl in high school. I had struggled with questions of diversity and inclusion, and we were calling it tolerance back then uh, in the in the 1990s. We, we still refer to it as tolerance. Um, but I had really struggled, and I had really looked forward to college as the time when I would be in a more inclusive environment and I could be my authentic self. And so one of the things I did was I came out my first year, my week of college, which at the time, I mean, that was very normal. We would joke about people being, you know, bisexuals until graduation, like being gay in college was very much a predictable part of the teenage experience um, back then. Um, but I chose to come out in my first week at a small private religious school that was actually not very diverse and where I was hanging out mostly by accident. And it was a nightmare. I was one of five out people on campus. Uh, I was one of five openly non-Catholic people on campus. Uh, I had like a public altercation with the campus priest one day. I mean, it was a nightmare. It was not going well. It was absolutely, I did not fit in. I did not have friends. I did not have a place. I did not enjoy most of my classes. I was totally, it was just the wrong setting for me, just completely and totally the wrong place. And I went to the library and I looked for their gay books and they had this small, pathetic selection of books on bisexuality, all of which were for married men, men who were married to women, but had discovered later in life that they were attracted to men and wanted to stay married to women, either by being uh, by 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 never acknowledging that they were attracted to men or by getting their wives to like write them a series of call passes. Um, and that was the entirety of the literature on bisexuality that was available under that like catalog number, right? Mm. Like they had Havelock Ellis's book. Um, and that was just so dispiriting for me as a young woman who like, I just wanted to live my truth and I was kind of hoping I could start dating, you know? <laughs> And everything was so depressing and so sad and so 
so broken and so willing to hurt people. And that wasn't what I wanted. And so I sort of wandered around the library badly and I looked at the photography books. And then I discovered the woman of fiction section. And I read everything Alice Walker had published, including every magazine article she'd ever published. And I read uh, every Toni Morrison book that existed. And I read every Maya Angelou poem that I could find. I read the entirety. I, I became a completist for womanist fiction. And I mean, the idea that some people might not like the label feminist was totally new to me. I was very sheltered. Um, but I read those books and... First off, they articulated a lot of things about being a person who isn't accepted by the larger world um, in a way that made sense to me and got me through that that awful, awful first year of college. It, you know, that's that's why I survived. And I'm not saying our experience is the same. I'm saying that emotionally, a lot of those feelings were the same. And so having other people articulate that feeling and reflect it back to me was just really helpful and really powerful. And that's what kept me alive. And especially Alice Walker, you know, in The Color Purple, um, there is some queer content between the women. And I think that sort of beginning literary critics like to debate whether, you know, Celie is a lesbian or is she a lesbian out of trauma? And like, those are dumb questions, I think. But especially if you read the later books in that series, because it, it is the opening of, of a series of connected books, uh, at one point, um, a character articulates the idea that being bisexual is is just constructed in a certain way and that there's also, you know, lots of ways to integrate your sexuality with who you are and how you intersect with the world. She talks about a character who is having, like, this sounds kind of weird and gross, but a, a sexual experience with a waterfall. Like, she's, she's having, like, a, an erotic experience of being immersed in nature, which is admittedly not something I've experienced. But it just articulated that set of concepts really well and spoke to me in a way that all those horrifying mid-century scientific marriage manuals definitely did not. And so those books, those writers, those are what kept me alive through that awful, awful, awful year. And I, 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 will, I will never... I'll never be able to pay that debt. I can only pay it forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. It was very interesting and very, uh, very engaging. Why don't we take a moment to um, listen to some of your writing uh, to digress a little bit or to translate into uh, when we take, this is already eight forty. So why don't we take some time to listen to some of your writing, listen to your voice and how this translated into your own uh, vision for literature uh, so set it up and then quickly, and then you can discuss a little bit more afterwards. Sure. Um, do you want a poem or an essay? I have basically two poems and an essay. If you want me to bracket them, I can. Uh, an essay would be fine. And then maybe something, uh, on point with what you're, what we've been discussing. Um, okay. Yeah. Sure. So this is called, um, mistake on the lake. I worked when I wrote this story at a public library branch on the east side of Cleveland. Cleveland, the mistake on the lake, is internationally renowned for our social problems. The crime, the poverty, the burning river, the murderous cops, the devastation of the Rust Belt. I have friends from Denmark and Italy and Shanghai who ask, why is Cleveland so messed up when they have never walked on the Lake Erie shore or eaten a pierogi? But the city is admittedly somewhat messed up, and this library is smack in the middle of that. 
crime, empty businesses, abandoned buildings, underfunded schools, sidewalks full of broken glass. That is true, 100%. <clears throat> when the children leave our branch, I don't know where they all go. Some have warm and loving families, but many are not sure where they'll sleep or whether they'll have dinner. Today, during my workday, there was a debate on Facebook about whether it's possible to adequately and equitably fund public education for all children, not just middle-class suburban white children, but all children, all of them. My college friend's cousin was insisting loudly that Ohio's unconstitutional school funding model is the only way that rich white kids get a, poor, get a good education and poor black kids don't, and that's just inescapable. While this was going on, while he and his family were debating possible funding models with the default assumption that failure is inevitable for our poorer children, I was not really paying attention. I was busy because Ava was asking for help. For three months, Ava and her friends have been writing novels. They come to the branch, sit down at the laptops, and write. I was told this was an impossible program to run, that no one would come, no one would attend, no one would participate, it could not be done. But today, Ava finished composing her text. She proofread it. She copy-edited it. She illustrated her book with open-source images after a discussion of copyright law. She printed it. She bound it. She gave copies to the staff, including the security guards. She is so proud of herself, and I am so proud of her. Her book is beautifully written and charming. It's a memoir of her baby brother's arrival and an essay about how much she loves him, and the last page is filled with pictures of his favorite snacks. So if you want to continue debating whether it's possible or even desirable to educate all children, if you want to continue clutching your pearls and hoarding your textbooks and TI-82s, go ahead. Keep all the goodies for yourself. Fine. I think it's a mistake, but I can't stop you. But also, you cannot stop Ava. She is nine years old. And she finished her book today. She is working on the sequel. There is also a sequel to this story. I told this story on Facebook, and a bunch of my friends said, how can we help? They wanted to help. They wanted to help Ava, who they think is special. She must be special. She's gifted. She's a diamond. They want to pluck her out of the neighborhood and help her. But Ava is honestly not all that special. All my kids are amazing. Janelle has written a gymnastics-themed international spy thriller, and Darius is working with an epic seven-book fantasy series. Tia spent all day working on her novel without a break. At the end of the day, she and her brother asked if we had any free lunches left over from Friday. We did. Thank God, because I hadn't realized that little eight-year-old kid had been typing without ingesting anything but drinking fountain water for eight and a half hours. I told the kids to take the lunch home and to be sure to split the packet of baby carrots because we only had one left. Darius, with his fantasy epic, asking what the time limit is for this project. George R.R. Martin is setting the bar at, what, eight, nine years if the fans are lucky? No pressure, kid. You've got time. But what if the library closes, he said, which is a fair question. Schools and community centers do keep closing on Darius. I had been paying for this project out of my own pocket without even using library funding. And I started thinking about it. I remembered my life in Chicago. I remembered the poetry slam. I remembered visiting open books and 826 and Chicago Lights. And I thought maybe Cleveland could use that. Maybe we could use a bookstore that would teach kids to read and get them into college. And I quit my job. 
I quit my government union job with benefits to become a bookseller. And for the past two years, we've been pushing books and taking names at the Reading Room CLE. I spend a lot of time explaining to Clevelanders what we do. I have a business card that says we believe in diverse books for the diverse readers of a diverse city. But although those readers and those writers are diverse, they do have one thing in common. All our children are like Ava. All our children are above, are above average. All our children are capable of greatness if we just give them a chance. Thank that you. is the end. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Very good. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate this essay. And um, I just want to also do, uh, before we, uh, it's already 45, so I'm going to do a quick, couple of quick announcements as we yeah. transition. Uh, you're listening to the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn is independent listener supported radio. Um, thanks for listening. Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us to stay on air. Please support independent media, community media by pledging whatever you can, you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible folks sent to law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn's Drive to Five fundraising campaign is underway in May. RFB turns five years old, and we need to raise $25,000 so we continue to bring you commercial-free independent community media for another five years. And we're not all about, we're about 30% there. We have a long way to go in just a couple of months. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation to help us reach our goal, the easiest way is to text RFB Gives, the number five, to, um, 44321. You make a pledge right on your phone. Um, RFB, RFB Gives five, give five. Um, we also have, uh, great gifts for giving available on our website, including the limited edition fifth anniversary a t-shirt designed by a former Clash member, uh, Clash manager, uh, Cosmo Vinyl. If you'd like to get these great premiums, you can make your donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash drive to five. If you can't afford to give, you can still let us know how much you love us by calling the special voicemail at 718-673-8201. Leave a message letting us know how you, why you love RFB or why you love Truth to Power uh, and wish us a happy birthday. Um, if you can send your message, maybe play it on air. Okay. Um, so why don't we continue the conversation? We have about five or 10 more minutes. Um, what are some of your most impressive successes and failures in life? And what did you learn from them, uh, to, uh, to grow and to, to, um, to advance your, your, your perspectives? Um, sure. Um, I think for me, one, one of the biggest failures in my life um, so I was always like a liberal, you know, I was always raised to think that it would probably be nice if we could treat each other fairly, you know, it would probably be nice if we could, if we could get along and like honor people for who they are. And like, you know, the, the multicultural potluck is like the default setting for my faith community growing up. And so I absolutely was raised, um, in that, in that liberal space, but when I was in my early 30s and my mid-30s, I got really sick. I got, like, silently, mysteriously sick, and um, there was not – I couldn't figure out what was going on, and I was just sort of slowly dying. And, I mean, slowly, like, over a period of years, I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. 
And I was very fortunate in that I had a corporate job that had really good benefits, including um, really good short-term and long-term disability benefits that included both health coverage and um, salary continuance. And so I... I was failing at that job. I was struggling. I was not meeting my goals. I was not doing the things my coworkers needed me to do because I was so sick that I could barely function. And finally, my manager took me aside and she was like, look, you are not succeeding. We've tried to get you up to speed and it's not happening. I'm going to have to put you on a performance plan. And if you're put on a performance plan, I mean, you can fix it or you can be fired in a month. And I finally had to admit She's right. I'm not succeeding. I've, I I guess I'm going to take a break. And so I, I called HR and I, I got on disability leave and um, the really generous leave policies of that employer allowed me to become basically a full-time medical patient and to get this stuff resolved. And I did get it resolved, which was astonishing, um, but it took like five, five and a half years. Um, so it was such a gift to have access to medical care and to have the salary continuance that let me pay my bills and survive. Um, but it also was so heartbreaking. I had never planned on having children and I had always planned on having a career instead. And so being told you will not necessarily be having a career, you may die and you definitely are not going to have, you know, this, this, high-powered, stressful corporate career that you've been trying to have, you are done. And I mean, I would go to doctors and they would say, look, you're very, very sick, but you have a college degree. You have a partner who loves you. You have a work history. You need to be happy with that. And it's, if it's time for you to retire, it's just time for you to retire. And I was like, I, I can't retire at 35. What, what will I do? What will I be? And, and that is because I really, even with my liberal values, I still believed that like, having a job is where you get your meaning. I still believed that making money was how you get your worth. I still basically believed the central tenet of capitalism, that people with more money are, have more value. And I never would have said that out loud, but I still believed it. And so when I was told, like, you aren't going to work, you may not spend your time productively in any way, shape, or form, you may become, you know, what Mitt Romney would have called a taker. Um, I had to find a, a way to still value myself in my own existence when I had lost that thing that I had, had believed in so strongly. Um, and that was, I think it was actually relatively easy for me being a woman. Like I had hobbies, I had an art career, I had, you know, a strong social life, I had a strong faith life. And so it was easier for me to transition than I think it is for many men who retire because I didn't get all of my identity from my career, but I did get a lot of it from my career and from my role as a breadwinner. Just being told like, no, you're done. You're done. You're not doing this anymore. It is gone and you need to just get over that was just so hard. It was, it was the worst. It was, it, it, I, I literally did not know what to do with myself. And so I had, I just lost that and I had to then find what I would do. Um, and for a long time, it looked like I would have to find that, find that meaning, find that worth, find that worthwhileness outside of capitalism. Now, the the surprise ending to the story is that I did get better and I was able to go back to work and I work now for a living and I pay my own bills for the most part. Um, but for a long time, I wasn't sure I would be able to. And that is sort of what radicalized me. And that's what made me recognize, like, you know, productivity is not actually the only virtue in the world. It doesn't matter whether you work for a living or 
or whether you do something glamorous or something not glamorous or whether you, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what capitalism tells us we are. We are all human beings. We all have worth and value and potential and meaning regardless of whether we fit into a capitalist system or not. And so that is what radicalized me. And that's what made me, um, it gave me just a much broader view of what we need to do. I, I, I might've said before that what we need is to support people so they can succeed in capitalism. But now my attitude is that we need to support people, whether they will ever succeed in capitalism or not. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that's really interesting to think about, you know, how the framework of which, you know, the prominent framework of which we um, live in and, and, and capitalism, uh, you know, defines value. You know, we like to believe it's uh, some, some people like to believe it's a meritocracy, but the under, you know, understanding the reality is that, you know, there's a lot of structural inequalities that allow people who acquire wealth or who succeed within this framework they have a lot of the, the biases and the and the structural inequalities and the and acknowledging and seeing that and understanding that uh you know coming to a true place of uh humanism understanding that all human beings have that potential and we should value each other i think that's what i'm getting out of what you're saying yeah yeah and it's it's also like it's not even just about the obvious structural inequalities you know by by yeah. any measure I am a princess. I was raised in a sheltered, wealthy little suburb. Um, we we kept our children packed in cotton wool. I think it's I think it was Ray Bradbury said that his town was a great race, place to raise children, but maybe not a great place to raise adults. I mean, that was huh. right growing up. It was honestly, in many ways, very idyllic. I am white. I am college educated. I am English speaking. I am a citizen. All of that stuff. I have all the privilege in the world, but all of that privilege is not necessarily going to translate to the outcome that it is designed to create. And so given that it doesn't work, like even even if it worked, it doesn't work for everyone and it also doesn't work. I mean, so it's like, first off, that little small town that I was raised in is extracting value from everyone else in the, in the state and not giving it back. And that is just the absolute worst. You know, I don't want to be raised as a predator, but also, so you extracted all that value from the surrounding area. You extracted all that all that economic engine and you gave it to these privileged little children and then I'm still going to end up broke. You know, what's the point? Like now I'm living broke, but in a country that has redlining. Oh, well that's an improvement, you know? So I just, that's part of what made me just totally lose faith in the system was recognizing that in addition to not working for the people it is designed to fail, it also doesn't work for the people it's designed to succeed. And even the ones that do like, do you want to live in a world where bigotry and prejudice are the norm? Because in addition to people suffering from bigotry and prejudice, people have to perpetrate bigotry and prejudice. And those are awful outcomes. Those are just awful. Those are, those are, those are not something I'd wish on anyone. I, 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 was, I was talking about redlining and about manipulating the banks the other day. And I said that to be the sort of person who will deliberately take advantage of legalized segregation you have to harden your heart you have to cut off your capacity for compassion you have to extinguish that part of yourself that identifies with other people and when you have extinguished that and cauterized that wound it does not grow back and if you are a person who can't experience compassion then you can't experience true generosity of spirit and that is a horrible life that is a life i would not wish on anyone not having the capacity for compassion is 
is a nightmare that I would, I would never send anyone to that existence. And so, you know, it's not just about not letting people be harmed by receiving the violence of this system. It's also about not letting people be harmed by being asked to perpetrate the violence of this system, both mm. the overt sort of physical violence and also the emotional and spiritual and economic violence. Those turn us into people that I don't want to be. I don't want to be raised by. I don't want to raise. I don't want to be neighbors with. I don't want to live in a world where we're asking people to do that because that's not, that's, that's not what this world is made for. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so now as we start to wind down, now it's only like four more minutes. I'm, I'm going to want to play a song to go out with. Uh, tell us a little bit about where people can find you or where people can follow your work or your, uh, and repeat the website. I think in the beginning we gave a website sure. out. Yeah. If you tell that. Yeah. Sure. So I have two websites. I have one for the bookstore, which is, we are a nonprofit bookstore in Cleveland. Um, we support literary and literacy programs. We primarily operate online, but we also have events um, here in the city, and that is readingroomcle.org. So it's www.readingroomcle.org, and you can also find us on social media. And then I have a personal art practice, which is robotballerina.com, and uh, that's my poetry and my art. Thank you, thank you. So we'll go out with uh, a song you selected, a um, uh, more upbeat song to uh, kind of leverage out the the deep conversation we've been having. I guess. Uh, uh, do you want to tell us why you picked it? Uh, which song are we playing? I used to play "Sugar Sugar." Oh, awesome! Yeah. Um, so I um, I really love um, the bubblegum music of the fifties and sixties. It is a thing that brings me deep joy. And I also, uh, I love TV bands. And so I love the monkeys and I love the Archies. And this is the Archies. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're listening to Ready for Brooklyn, Truth to Power Show. Uh, please tune in every Monday at 8 a.m. We broadcast right now Thursdays at 9. A little subject to change. So check our, our schedule at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Thank you so much. of loving.